Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the first episode of Strangers in a Cinema of the year 2020. I'm co-host Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, man. Did you ever think back in the heady days of, what, 2014, when we thought, oh, should we do a little audio review of the film Blue Ruin, that we'd be here in the year 2020 talking about films on a podcast that is listened to by literally tens of people? (laughs) Here we are in situ... No, I guess some of our episodes have absolutely smashed it, but we're not ones to brag. So, uh, yeah, we'll move into a new year with uh, a new sense of confidence around our show because there's amazing things ahead... And I think, Paul, you would agree that there are pretty good things behind us too in the sense of the work on the show that we did at the end of last year. If anyone missed it, we've got all kinds of top tens available in the archive of the show, such as, Paul... Uh, what did we have? Top 10 horror movies. No, top five horror movies of the year. Top 10 films of the decade. That was in there. That was a treat. That was a brilliant one to record, (laughs) although agonising. We had, of course, top 10 of the year. We had worst five films of the year. All these things are more available in the archive uh, via SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. So check those out if you haven't so far. But We're not living in the past, Paul. We're living in the present time and we're going to talk about today's show. So we've got, as always, a structure to this show and we're going back to the regular structure that you're more familiar with than the the, uh, list episodes that we did at the tail end of 2019. That means we've got a feature review. Paul, what are we feature reviewing today? Uh, We're feature reviewing the latest film from Taika Waititi, which is Jojo Rabbit, which I think came out last Friday and has been very highly anticipated. Uh, On top of that, we've got the usual uh, news section, we'll talk very briefly about some things that are in the news this week. Uh, Probably award season buzz, I imagine. Uh, Then we've got popcorn movies, which I'm excited to get to because I get to talk about Star Wars finally. Uh, Coming attractions. And then finally, to cap off the show, we've got our... We've kind of put our heads together on this one and come up with, I think for the first time, I would say it's it's just about a joint top 10 most anticipated films of 2020. Uh, So five each from both of us, but kind of put our heads together to make sure we didn't duplicate on that. So yeah, exciting to get to that. It's looking like a crack year for film I think this year so uh, yeah very excited very excited yeah yeah where some people uh, not mentioning any names on the internet some big publications have essentially listed every single film that's coming out in the year 2020 as most anticipated <laughs> we're not going to bulk at responsibility and we've taken on the burden of having to get down to as you said Paul just 10 films between us or five films each so looking forward to that but first of all we always start in the foyer we talk about something from the world of film this week it's got to be hasn't it Award season. Award season is fast approaching. We've had the Golden Globe nominations just uh, the well, other Golden day. Golden Globe Awards last night, in fact. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're no right. Worries. And BAFTA nominations today. I'm still stuck in the past. And BAFTA nominations <laughs> today. And then obviously we've got Oscars just around the corner. Um, Paul, start us off here. What's your feeling? Are you trepidatious coming to award season? Are you excited? Do you like this time of year? How are you feeling this year? Uh, I'm not always a massive fan of award season, to be honest, because I think there's there's such a thing. There, are, Well, at times films are guilty of being a genre that's kind of crowd award pleaser really um and it is kind of like hollywood slapping itself on the back that being said um film is front and center in everyone's mind which is always quite exciting and you know certain films and this is the time of year where certain films that may have not have done so well uh sort of commercially do get an added bump so there's swings and roundabouts to this really um i know gold obviously the golden globes happened last night we're not going to we're not going to labor on listing all the results of who won what and what we thought of that what we're going to do in this section really i guess from what we talked about before is just 
just list what we think should be up for some awards this season. Pete, do you think that's a fair a fair way to do it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's worth saying if people didn't know that in terms of BAFTA and those nominations that have just been um, announced, we've got a couple of big hitters right up there in terms of the number of nominations that they have. Leading the pack is Joker with 11 nominations. Then the Tarantino one, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, has 10, as does The Irishman. Just behind that with nine, you've got 1917, the Sam Mendes film that drops this week. Um, then you've got Jojo Rabbit with six, Marriage Story and The Two Popes alongside Little Women received five. So some things that we've definitely praised there, some things that will be... <laughs> hoping uh, receive awards uh, acknowledgement but of that group or any others man what do you think coming into sort of BAFTA after uh, Oscar season what do you think should get the big awards of that group there I think oh, I think probably personal preference would be maybe the Irishman certainly not Joker I, I still maintain I think Joker's a, a very overrated film I think it's an incredible performance from Joaquin Phoenix but I don't I don't buy the hype I don't think it's a particularly well put together film aside from that I think it's got too many narrative questions left unanswered I'm just not I, it was fine I, I didn't hate it I didn't love it um, for me I'd like to see uh, I'd like to see Parasite clear up to be perfectly honest um, I really think that should, this should be the year that a film bucks the trend and wins uh, Best Picture Oscar even if it's in a foreign language that's the film I think that I've seen uh, Parasite or Uncut Gems which we will review in due course on the show those are the two films for me that I think should receive the most praise yeah yeah I mean I suppose I, I'm conflicted because I, I basically agree with you but then I've got this other little voice inside my said inside my head sorry saying it's just not going to happen and, no. and the idea that Parasite runs off with with Best Picture just seems incredibly unlikely given the history that we have with the Academy Awards but mm. in particular um, but hopefully you know we hold out hope that that there are going to be major awards particularly for that film um, because it is so great and you know that review forthcoming on our show obviously um, there are things that I'm sure are going to be lauded like I can't see this season going by without uh, without the Tarantino film and the Scorsese film getting a huge number of awards um, where they come whether they're best pictures or more technical awards we'll wait and see but um, both films that I think I, I anyway have had um, fairly major reservations about even though they have received a lot of critical praise um, for me personally from this list I guess um, I lean towards something like Little Women hopefully being recognised I'm seeing it tonight Pete I'm excited oh, brilliant. I haven't seen it I'm going tonight so yeah very excited to see it so um, yeah sorry go on I interrupted you because that's how excited I am <laughs> yeah. no the, it, exactly well that's testament to uh, the feeling around that movie and yeah hopefully something like that that not because it's a female director not because it's a largely female ensemble cast but just because it's a fantastic piece of writing and a fantastic piece of work from everybody involved uh, I would love a film like that to get recognition maybe over some of the uh, more established names I mean obviously that's a film with some big names on the acting side but Greta Gerwig is still building her name and after the success of Lady Bird it would be great to see more uh, recognition come her way I suppose although you know independent critics and, and many people you know the, the internet wide have praised Gerwig for a while so um, it's hardly like an underdog story but at the same time it would be great to see Little Women pick up some prizes other than that man like I it's hard for me not to just feel a bit like like I don't really really care that much <laughs> when we get into this part of the year I'll, I'll i'll lap it up i'll watch the award ceremonies i suppose um although you know on delay is always better because you can skip through the absolute filler that they put <laughs> you know throughout a, a thing like that uh i guess we'll wait and see a any closing thoughts on the awards uh, i hope joker doesn't win much <laughs> would be my would yeah be my oh, oh i'm totally with you <laughs> 
Yeah, I didn't say when you mentioned it before, but yeah, totally with you. I mean, I forgot about that film like almost straight away. The only reason I still think about it is because people can't stop talking about it on Twitter. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's just yeah, fine. I'm, I'm with you on that one. That, but that's... yeah, we'll, we'll, I mean, I'm sure the awards season will come up again uh, on future episodes. Well, for sure it will uh, when the winners have been announced. But yeah, check out the BAFTA nominations. They're out there now. And check out the Golden Globe winners. Um, and check out Ricky Gervais absolutely roasting the Golden Globes audience because uh, whether you like him or hate him, he did a very good job of sending up Hollywood last night. So yeah, that pretty much brings us to the end of the end of film news as it is. That means that we have a little transition, a little break, and then we'll be back right after that break with the section of the show that we always call Popcorn Movie. Movies right after this. Right, so I'm really excited about popcorn movies this week because over Christmas um, there were two pretty big hitters um, that we didn't get, well, very big hitters, I would say, uh, that we didn't get a chance to discuss in much detail because we were focused on, I'll be honest, here and now, I'll throw it out there, we were focused on talking about much better films than these two films. Um, But it does get to mean, uh, it does mean I get to talk about Star Wars Rise of Skywalker, um, which I was kind of dubious would be any good because I didn't like Last Jedi, which is, a matter of public record i'm not going to talk too much about that film here um, but what i will say about star wars rise of skywalker is that i think it does as good a job as it possibly could considering in my opinion last jedi had written the trilogy into a corner and kind of kind of felt like it had finished a story um that so yeah rise of skywalker is fine as a star wars fan as a film it's got some problems uh it's massively rushed uh, hugely rushed in places um the first hour there's so much exposition that you kind of got a headache and you don't really know what's going on um there was almost like a whole film there's definitely like a whole film in the opening crawl or, that comes up in the in the uh prior to the credits everyone should be familiar with that you're just like wow this is taking big steps forward um the set pieces are fun um i guess well, the set pieces are fun. It, the film looks incredible, so there's 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 some good things to to say about it. But it just the whole thing feels rushed. Um, what is interesting is that I've been doing was watching something today. There seems to be a, like a theory or a Reddit a massive Reddit leak that apparently claims that J.J. Abrams didn't get control over the final cut. I wanted the film to be three hours long. Um, the final film I think is two hours twenty. Uh, apparently, at one point, wanted to make this into two films, which makes a lot of sense if you see how rushed this film is. Um, and really, really, and apparently, wasn't even given final cut. The studio took it off. Disney took it off of him, recut it, and he, the first time he saw the cut that was released was at the premiere. Now, I'm not sure I believe all of this. But if you feel, if you watch the film and you genuinely feel how rushed it is, it does feel like there's big chunks of plot missing, which is a shame because it's entertaining. The tone for me is better than Last Jedi. Um, the the crap comedy's gone that I didn't like. It's it's fine. Star Wars is fine. Um, for me, I want them to move on to non-Skywalker related things. I want them to potentially go to the Old Republic. There's a much wider universe that they could explore, which I've talked about on this show before. That's where I want them to go with it. This trilogy's over and done with. Let's move on from it and let's have something new in Star Wars, please, going forward. Pete. Still haven't seen it. (laughs) Although, 
in in fairness, uh, I, I'll let the you listener know about the fact that uh, Paul Anderson was very gracious today because I needed to fit in one film for our feature review, and I had the choice of uh, start the new Star Wars or Jojo Rabbit. And Paul uh, texted me in advance of going to the screening and said, "If you want to go to Jojo Rabbit, we could do that one." <laughs> and I've got to be a, a little bit honest here, a little bit candid, Paul. I, I was kind of relieved because uh, the Star Wars film was quite a lot longer, and um, I was going to go and see it in IMAX, which might have been the best way to see it. Maybe I'll still do that. But um, I've caught up with Jojo Rabbit, so we'll review that one. Star Wars, it sounds like, non-essential for me, uh, maybe? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, I, there's, there's, lots, there's lots more to say. It's fine. It does as good a job as you could expect. But yeah, it didn't didn't blow me away. So yeah, that's that's it. It's this trilogy done. Let's, let's do something new. <laughs> let's move on. Good. Uh, moving on for us, I have got a little review of Diego Maradona, which is the documentary, believe it or not, about Diego Maradona. From your boy who makes documentaries about tragic fallen heroes, Asif Kapadia, of course, who made uh, the Amy Winehouse documentary, previously Senna as well, which is kind of his breakthrough. And an interesting thing about Asif Kapadia is that he seems to me to be this kind of workaday film director in terms of fiction stuff who has then been brought in as a hired gun to direct Senna put his own touch to that movie quite clearly and has had you know much deserved success from Senna it's a powerful piece of work and has then sort of parlayed that into now being the leading light when it comes to making this kind of a documentary. So what he's done here is the kind of Asif Kapadia treatment. You get 5,000 hours or whatever the press have been saying about this movie of uh, some previously unseen, some commonly available footage of a Diego Armando as he's uh, ascending through the football world. An ascent which takes him eventually to his time in Italy and his involvement with the Italian mob um, and then with the party scene and then with the drug party scene and then with a sort of inexorable decline uh, leading towards him, piling on the pounds, losing quite a bit of the uh, footballing ability or at least suppressing the natural ability that he that he had within himself as arguably the greatest footballer to ever play the game. Um, so, yeah, I think Kabardia does a good job of compiling this stuff into what is an enjoyable document of this man for anybody who has even a passing interest in, in the game of football. And even, and I guess this is his greatest strength, even those who don't really care about football. You know, I went into Senna as a very much lapsed Formula One fan. I loved it till I was about... 13 then I didn't care till I was in my sort of mid-20s and I saw that documentary so uh yeah a, a good job it's not maybe as dazzling as I perhaps hoped for but I think knowing Kapadia's work maybe uh you might want to temper your expectations is a bit harsh on the guy because I think he's a really likable guy and I think he does really good stuff um, it doesn't have maybe the rigor that you might expect from, you know, it's not it's not a Ken Burns documentary on Maradona, no, let's put it that way. Um, and, and, you know, that would be an interesting thing to see. But he did have enough access. He says that he was given interviews with Maradona, but he'd only be ever be given like an hour in a day. So he'd fly all the way to Argentina to sit down with the guy who is now, you know, embroiled in personal issues, politics and all kinds of other things. And... 
there would always be a suggestion that now's not the right time to speak to Diego. Later <laughs> would be better. And he'd have to go away and come back and go away and come back. So he's done well to actually bring this thing to fruition. I think there's a lot to enjoy here. Um, I'm a big football fan anyway, so I was always going to catch up with this one. But Paul, I would say, you know, the reverse of the Star Wars situation, I guess. Uh, as somebody who loves football, talking to someone I know who doesn't particularly love football i think you would still enjoy this as a piece i've not of seen work. any of his films to be fair i think we joked i think we joked a few episodes back is that he seems to keep making documentaries about people that i don't have a huge amount of interest in um and ultimately i probably should give certainly give senna a go and amy's supposed to be very good and they are supposed to be very good documentaries perhaps i should because ultimately the mark of a good documentary filmmaker is someone who can engage you on a topic that wouldn't normally be of interest to you so yeah. yeah, yeah. And and the point being, Paul, that like what he does do undoubtedly is he makes it a human story. So his documentaries can be approached by someone who can connect with the idea that this is a guy who um, went through some experiences that took him to this incredible place that, you know, most of us couldn't dream of. But the faults and the foibles of that person are very relatable. Mm you know, are very relatable to the best of us. We, we've all erred. We've all done too much, too soon, too fast or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I think from that point of view, it's a success. Um, tempered a little bit maybe by my own lofty expectations for a, a document yeah. of such an amazing football player. What else have you got this week, man? Uh, as I said, I was catching up with two films that came out on the same day. Um, Universal were that confident with this one that they ran it against Star Wars and it's now lost 70, well, I think somewhere around the region of $100 million now. This is, of course, um, the film that everyone seems to love to hate at this moment. Uh, Tom Hooper's Cats, uh, the adaptation of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Um, I'll, I'll keep it brief um, because for the most part, it is pretty much as bad as people say it is um the cgi is problematic for sure it's it's creepy i, I don't know what they were thinking I, it just for me it, it doesn't work it, it it's very very distracting i don't understand how these cats have got human features like sometimes a certain certain people certain actors look great other actors look bad it, it's it's doc, well documented now that uh, tom hooper was editing the film 36 hours up till the very morning of its premiere uh, and then universal sent out improved versions mid-run uh, with improved cgi um which is it, just insane just they were that desperate to get it out um on on its release date and you know the film certainly feels that there's there's moments where the cgi is so creepy there's one scene with with three particular mice that I, I literally sat there and i started laughing out loudly because it reminded me of the radiator scene from a razor head like that that's that's the last time i'd kind of been disturbed that much by special effects in a film so yeah there's some it, it doesn't work it, it's a shame um but that's the cgi isn't the film's only problem I, I will hasten to add i think for me a big reason cats doesn't work is because there seems to be a fundamental misunderstanding of the fact that musicals and film are different mediums. And this film, it just plows headlong into the songs, which is fine. It's a musical. I went in knowing that, expecting to maybe enjoy some of the songs. And I did just about enjoy one song, I think. Um, but it, it just plows headlong into the songs with no narrative for us. It doesn't really set up the world you're living in at all. Um, and there's just no narrative drive to the film. So the first hour is just absolute chaos for anyone that hasn't seen the musical. So it's very difficult to engage with any characters because they're just not well established. They come in, sing a song, and with the best one in the world, the first time you hear a song, you are not going to hear every lyric of that song, whether even if you're trying. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a failure on, on many, many levels. And a real shame, really, because I think in the right hand it's clearly a labor of love for for the cast they're clearly enjoying themselves the dance routines are solid to be fair but 
that just can't make up for the creepy CGI and, and complete lack of narrative. So yeah, it is a bit of a disaster, unfortunately. Yeah, another one I haven't seen, um, but with good reason, because <laughs> yeah. I've been, you know, ear to the ground on what people are saying about cats. Although I'm pretty sure my wife will get me along to that one uh, soon enough. So I'll have my own. It's all right. Info. If you leave it long enough, it's, it's, I think it's, it's just about finished. So if you leave it another week and then bring it up, you'll be like, oh, what a shame. It's finished. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, not too much in common with Cats for my last one. I've made a last minute change and I'm going to talk briefly about uh, a little film called All Creatures Here Below. This is a, a film directed by Colin Shifley, but the interesting part for me and the attraction for me is it's written, the screenplay is written by David, da- David Dasmalkian, an actor that... I've really endeavoured to sort of uh, track recently because I just find him a really engaging on-screen presence, really interesting guy. He co-stars in this one alongside Karen Gillan, which was another thing that attracted me to the movie. Uh, But what we have is a couple played by Gillan and Asmalkian who are very, very down on their luck, to say the very least. They live in a sort of hand-to-mouth existence. Uh, She seems to have a penchant for staring at other people's children to the extent that she has been given some kind of restraining order from a school because I think the danger that people feel is more that she's going to perhaps take a liking to a child and remove that child from its parents. Um, in at the same time in this dysfunctional relationship you've got Dasmalkian who's struggling to make ends meet and then loses his job. Uh, at absolute crisis point they flee with a baby in tow, not their own, and they are pursued from that point for what they have done. The the premise that I set up there with those two actors, I think, is pretty interesting, is, um, you know, rich uh, territory for dramatic work. And the problem with this film is that, is very much that. It's that all the way through, it feels like um, too obviously rich territory for an actor writing for himself Mm. who wants to have scenes that are incredibly emotional incredibly disturbing and upsetting at times because of the content that's dealt with and there's no reason why David Dasmalkin shouldn't necessarily touch content like this but it's one of those where you start thinking as great as she is and as great as he is that's Karen Gillan doing acting and that's David Dasmalkin doing acting and that's not a good thing when you're you're lifting such heavy heavy topics as these and sort of holding them up to the light and and then it all just becomes a bit you know high quality perhaps but high quality student filmish as it draws to its conclusion is this the one directed by Karen Gillan just out of interest Uh, no it's she's made a film hasn't she sorry yeah she she has made a film uh the party's just beginning yeah, I think perhaps that's, is that, her film. yeah that rings a bell yeah sorry I, I haven't seen that one yet but yeah Das Malkin made this he made another one called The Teacher or at least he starred in another one called The Teacher which is sort of like a small drama that I saw a little while ago uh, also not great um, I hope for better I mean there's there's so much promise he's clearly such a multifaceted multi, multi-talented guy uh, but so far I think the best I've seen with him is working under screenplays written by other writers and when being directed by other directors and that's no you know rub on the guy because he's taking on an awful lot and he's obviously incredibly ambitious I just think the best work is very much in the future and maybe not Mm. in in the present or the past in terms of writing and directing anyway so that one's all creatures here below any more for you Paul Uh, no that'll do me for this week I've got a lot to talk about but yeah not not this week We'll, we'll save them up 
We'll save them up. <laughs> nice. In that case, we'll duck out of this section and we'll be back in just a moment with the section of the show that we call Coming Attractions right after this. So yeah, this is Coming Attractions where we basically talk about what's out this week. In this case, Friday, we are recording on a Tuesday. Um, and yeah, whether we're excited about it or not. I think there's two releases this week, Pete, you wanted to bring up? There are a number of releases this week, man, but two that we're going to focus on for the show because we do want to limit our Coming Attractions section to films that people are realistically going to have a decent chance of seeing. I think that's only fair to the audience. So we start with the big hitter, I suppose, this week, which is Sam Mendes' new movie, 1917, which has been covered in some detail in some outlets, not least because of this at least perceived unbroken shot um, that makes up a kind of showy centre through line to to the movie. Um, Obviously a war movie set in the titular year 1917. Paul, what are your thoughts about this, you know, pre- pre-seeing it for yourself? Uh, I'm excited to be honest. I said Sam Mendes is a very talented director for sure. I didn't really like Spectre, the last Bond film that he worked on. To say I didn't really like it, I didn't like it at all. I thought it was it was quite flat. So I'm hoping this will be something of a return to form for Mendes, to be honest, because he is he's certainly got an eye for, certainly got a natural eye for filmmaking and he has made some, he's a very, 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 very capable filmmaker. Um, the one take thing will be interesting uh my eyes will be sharpened to see if i can spot the gaps i, I would i would wager it probably wasn't shot in one single take so i mentioned that's impossible um however i'd be intrigued to see how it works yeah i, I actually sam Mendes, i don't think has, has made any claims no. to that effect it it's the fact that it's sort of presented in that way and then i think uh somewhere around the halfway mark there's a fade to black and then a fade back in so uh, I've heard it argued that it follows a continuous thread of the consciousness of a central character right, okay. who in that fade out loses consciousness. Right, okay. But um, yeah, po- point being, it's an impressive feat in the, in the sense of, you know, something recent like uh, Birdman, I guess. Uh, on the other hand, could be seen as, uh, you know, needlessly showy, but, I hope but we'll it, yeah, see. Just, I hope it's not a gimmick. I hope it, I hope it works. Um, I, hope it, the fil- I hope there is more to the film than that. In terms of sort of hype, in terms of reading, obviously crit- critics have seen it. Critic screenings uh, seems to be very, very highly praised. So that's always that's always warming, shall we say? Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it will. I think it will be well made. I just hope it's more than the the gimmick that it looks like it's made in one shot. If that makes sense. I've just noticed Billy Postlethwaite, who is the late Pete Postlethwaite's son. Um, is in the cast for 1917 as well. And I, I've had Pete Postlethwaite on the brain because on New Year's Eve, um, for some reason, I watched the movie Aeon Flux. Have you seen <laughs> Aeon Flux? Before? I haven't, no. Should, should I? I mean, yeah, because you then will believe me when I tell you some of the things about it. I won't do that now, other than to say <laughs> Pete Postlethwaite essentially, essentially plays a sort of futuristic burrito in that movie. Right, so, okay. <laughs> so yeah, uh, make of that what you will. 1917 was the first one for this week. The second one is Seaberg. Seaberg from director Benedict Andrews. This one starring Kristen Stewart, uh, amongst others. Kristen Stewart leading the cast, an actress that we've praised quite a bit on the show, I think. Uh, inspired by real events in the life of French new wave icon Jean Seaberg in the late 1960s, Hoover's FBI targeted her because of her political and romantic involvement with civil rights activist Hakim Jamal. 
Um, a new chance to see Kristen Stewart on screen. Is that enough to get you to the cinema for this one, Paul? Uh, I don't know if I'll rush the cinema to see this one. I imagine it, I can't imagine it would be easiest to find, but it certainly will be on release somewhere around my area. Um, yeah, I've, I don't know much about the character that the film's about, in all honesty. I know a lit, I know bits and pieces about the French New Wave, uh, mostly gleaned from knowing about Truffaut and Goddard, I guess, um, and a few other bits and pieces gleaned from film studies at university. So yeah, it's not, it's not an actress I'm particularly familiar with in terms of would I rush to see a biopic about her um, but as you say a Kristen Stewart performance um, is always worth a watch I think so I'll probably catch up with this one at some point what what, an abs- what about an absolute banger of a supporting cl- cast there we've got Jack O'Connell Margaret Qualley uh, Vince Vaughn uh, Stephen Root Anthony Mackie all kinds of people in okay. the cast here so yeah it's it's a big hitting cast although uh, temper the expectations I guess it sounds like yours already are with the fact that the meta score currently is at 56 so it remains to be seen we'll, whether it be popcorn or feature reviewed it will be reviewed on the show in the future we can promise you that much dear listener that leaves us to exit then coming attractions which means that we will hop off for a second and hop right back on with our feature review for today it's Jojo Rabbit Paul do you see what I did right after this <laughs> Right, I'm still laughing at your joke previous to the break. Uh, no, wait, I've, I've moved on, it's fine. Um, yeah, so yeah, this is Jojo Rabbit, the latest from director Taika Waziti, uh, in which he plays... Uh, Pete, set this one up for us, because I'm about to make a hash of it. I can see it coming. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll have a go. Yeah, Taika Waititi is both director and writer on this thing. Uh, people will know Taika Waititi from things like um, Thor Ragnarok, but also, of course, from working on, I guess, more like his own films, things like What We Do in the Shadows and Hunt for the world of people yeah. uh, here as writer director again and boy of course uh, I always forget that movie but it's uh, really good uh, in this movie he plays sort of like the imaginary friend of a young boy a young boy growing up in Nazi Germany um, but th- as an imaginary friend he is in fact the embodiment of Adolf Hitler himself so it's almost like Hitler is able to follow the boy wherever he goes question the boy's actions decisions and give him advice about how to be a good Nazi Um, All the while, this boy is wrestling with a conflict brought about by the fact that his mother, played by Scarlett Johansson here, is harbouring a secret, uh, hidden Jewish girl, um, played by Thomasin McKenzie, who, if she is to be discovered, would lead, well, obviously to the the execution of, of herself and also the rest of that family. So the kid finds himself caught between a rock and a hard place in the sense that he wants to fit in with his new Nazi friends, uh, particularly a, a, a young, seemingly British or South African boy, uh, more on that later, uh, and the rest of the uh, uh, junior members of the Nazi party. What did they call those? Uh, Hitler Youth. Hitler Youth, yeah. The Hitler Youth, Hitler yeah. Youth. Uh, you know, at the same time, he wants to stay loyal to his mother and understand why she's taking the steps that she's taking. We'll talk more on our views of this film right after a little clip. Guys, this is Johannes Betzler, the kid I told you about. Remember, he stole a hand grenade and blew himself up, and as a result, I got demoted for negligence. Now I get to work in this office for all these wonderful kids. So, Jojo, I'm sure we can figure out something for you to do. Oh. Ideas? Yeah. Guys? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, we need somebody to walk the clones. Also, I think maybe he could hand out this new propaganda. 
and delivers these conscriptions. I don't suppose I could be conscripted. Could I? So yeah, this for me was one of the one of my most anticipated films. I think from the moment we realised it was coming out this year, I got, was lucky enough to see it back in November at a film festival. Just throwing that in there for the sake of saying that I went to a film festival. Really, um, however, yeah. So yeah, it was. I was very much anticipating this. Taika Waititi, I think, is a very, very, very talented director, and at times can be a very, very talented comic actor as well. So I was very much looking forward to this one. Um, Pete, where do you want to start on this? I'm not sure where to start here because. Um, there's a there's a lot going on in this film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess in the interest of brevity, because I know that we've got a top five to get to, I think I'm going to put my cards on the table and I'm going to say, to lead into my thoughts on this film or maybe open up the discussion, this movie, Jojo Rabbit, does not work. Um, it does not work and it is not a success. That okay. is my, my generalised <laughs> opinion with much more nuance to come as we get to talking about it. But do you chime with what I'm saying here at all, Paul, or do you feel a, a very different way? I feel there are there is a part of this film, and for me it was just about the majority of the film, that does work quite well. Um, and there is another part of the film that does not work at all. Um, I've got a feeling we might be on the same page here with, with which bits don't work and which bits do. Okay, um, well... Well, well yeah. how about how about I tell you what I think and then you tell me if you agree with that and, and why or why not. Let's Maybe do we'll, it. We'll go that way. So what I believe about the film Jojo Rabbit is that we could live in a parallel timeline where the director Taika Waititi did something really brave and he decided to make essentially a drama about this period in history which is so dark and troubled and injected into that drama moments of levity and comedy because he is such a talented comedy writer and we know that already and it's been proven beyond doubt. What we get instead is a film that heavily, at least early on, leans into being a sort of slapsticky comedy, playing everything for broad, aren't the Nazis ridiculous laughs, with the biggest possible comedy target you could imagine, I guess, in a certain sense. And then later in the movie, the director seems to want to have his cake and eat it by encouraging the audience to feel genuine grief and upset and outrage and uh, all kind, all manner of, sort of strong feelings at a point where I'd checked out a bit because I'd found that so much of the comedy material had been slightly mishandled and slightly overplayed. And I hate to say it, Paul, but I think one of the culprits, maybe the key culprit there on screen is Taika Waititi himself. 100% agree with you. 100% agree with you. Like the, the, the opening of the film, I, I literally, I looked... I looked left and I very quietly said to Laura, I'm really worried about this because I think for the first 20 minutes, I just sat there stony faced and was just like this. I don't find this funny like this. I just I know I was genuinely concerned, genuinely concerned. And I think I never thought I'd, I never thought I'd live to see the day where I wanted to see less of Taika Waititi in a film. Like I, I did not. I could be honest with you. His Hitler character, I don't think made me laugh at all. Like beyond what had made me kind of chuckle in the trailers, I don't think I laughed at all when he was on screen, and I I, I completely agree with you. I think his, he the, the the broad comedic elements for me just fell completely flat. That completely flat. It just didn't work for me. I think differently to you, I think the the broader story, the the more emotional story um, between the relationship between the two kids, um, I thought worked really really well, and I thought 
and I'll tell you why it worked really, really well. And that was the shining light of this film, which is Thomas and Mackenzie. Yeah, who I oh, thought 100%. was absolutely incredible in this. 100%. Like, she carried the film. She was brilliant. She is going to be huge, mark my words. And I think, and the, the Scarlett Hansen was, was solid, and the kid that played Jojo Rabbit was, was the kid that played Jojo was good as well. Um, and I thought there was there was enough of that story. I, I kind of, I think I managed to separate myself, almost shut out, the imaginary friend of Hitler and roll with what was left and I liked what was left I thought it was an emotionally well put together story but my god did this film not need Taika Waititi completely agree with you on that point yeah and and like you've got these supporting actors as well who were doing kind of goof off you know broad laughs well um, yeah yeah there's a few in there's a few that's it I was gonna bring up Rebel Wilson I think in terms of that kind of throwaway line I know that I'm in a stupid comedy movie and I'm here to make you laugh stuff I actually think Rebel Wilson did that the best Mm. in this thing I think I didn't I don't think I laughed at all honestly you know like you said Paul Taika Waititi didn't make you laugh I don't think anything in this film made me laugh out loud like there are a couple of sort of maybe low level uh, chuckles at, at, at points but there were people in the cinema who who thought this thing was a I know, couple I was, of guys I was in yeah. exactly the same boat there was people in this in the screening I went to there was people in the cinema who was like laughing that the, the way I think the way my wife describes it is people laughing like they've never been outside before and, yeah. and you know ultimately comedy is very very subjective if something makes you laugh it makes you laugh if it doesn't you can't help it um, but to go this broad with comedy um, and interestingly enough when I watched it at the Bar Film Festival I did, I did tweet and they Bar Film Festival tweeted me back to say what did you think and I thought I would be like a sole dissenting voice and they responded they went no actually there's there's been a number of people that think that because it seemed to be such a obvious crowd pleaser I thought it was the only I literally at one point I thought it was the only one in the audience not laughing at the film um, so it pleases me that other people have had the same thoughts to be honest because um, yeah. I thought maybe I was just being a miserly old fuck but <laughs> yeah, apparently uh, not I, I, I don't on this occasion, I don't think so. No, um, but then, yeah, I was going to say, for, moving on from Red Wilson, like Sam Rockwell, I think, is this is such a sort of um, multivalent kind of actor that he's able to do both things. Like he can do comedy timing and he can do a serious little bit of dialogue with the small boy as the city's being bombed to bits near the end of the film and kind of pull them both off. But then you've got, yeah, I mean, I, I hate as well on the Taika Waititi thing, but it just starts to feel like you're just showing off. Just mm. just stop. Cut yourself out of your own movie. You know, kill your darlings. You know, cut your favourite track or whatever they say about making records. Like, so little of it was necessary. And when you've got, like you said quite rightly, Paul, Thomas and Mackenzie basically carrying the movie in what is a proper dramatic bit of work yeah. on her part and then funny at times and light-hearted at times but handled with such grace and such elegance and such poise by that young actress it really it really got tiring each time Taika Waititi cropped up on, on screen and um yeah I mean it's not a big thing but also I found some of the accent work odd I feel like we hadn't really committed to where people were from because no. there was the idea that we were in Germany. I hadn't given that then... much thought until you've just said it, but yeah, that's fair. That's a very fair point to be honest. Well, Scarlett Johansson sounded sort of French at times and sort of Russian at times. Um, maybe a, an effect of some of the other roles that she's had in her career of late. Uh, I don't know. Then the boy who befriends Jojo Rabbit is essentially what English or South African? I, I think he meant out. to be. I think he's possibly English. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's it not something I thought about, but yeah, it's a fair point. But but I mean, he's supposed to be German, surely, 
in I, terms would, of the, I would assume so, yeah. Narrative, yeah, it's very odd. But, you know, a, a thing that it brought to mind is Chris Morris' film last year, we have to say now, in 2019, The Day Shall Come, because there was a guy who'd done such a good job with Four Lions of satirising something incredibly weighty and serious in terms of domestic terrorism in the United Kingdom, and then went on to tackle a bigger topic, uh, in fact, a, a transatlantic topic in the sense that he moved the focus onto... Um, purely America in this, in that film. And then it's similarly to Taika Waititi here, I felt like in the Morris film as well, a lot of the satire just like fell flat, just fell flat and, and felt, felt a little bit, um, I don't even know what the word is quite, it just off base or mishandled. It just felt, I think that, yeah, I'm with you. And I think the, the the, it kind of it 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 drains some of the dramatic impact from the the genuinely good scenes of the film because there are some good scenes here. I'm not not going to not going to drift into spoiler territory. There's one scene in particular that gets talked up a lot, and I think it it works quite well. But the, the dramatic the shifts in tone kind of act to sap some drama out of it, as you say. You kind of you end up switching off when you should be when you should be sort of zoned in. As soon as Taika Waititi's Hitler appears, just like. Oh. I've got to sit through this bit now to get to the good stuff again, and I, yeah, I, yeah, it's just the shifts in tone. Like, it doesn't always work. I, I see what I, I guess I talk a lot about things taking swings and and missing, and I'd rather things take a swing and try and do something a bit different. But again, it just didn't work here for me. Um, I just I don't understand what the what he was what the end result was what he was what he was trying to make here it just feels like two separate films but yeah th- you're right I think you're right about that it does it feels like there could be complete like two completely separate projects that, yeah. that you know it w- might work better um it felt to me at times or my maybe my mind drifted too much but the the Hitler appearing to the boy character is supposed to be some kind of iconoclastic dig at, at the church right hmm. it's supposed to be like the idea that this is this is his relationship that he has with with god essentially yeah. or, or some sort of godhead in in the hitler character but like it's it's almost like some of the stuff doesn't uh or some of the stuff sort of goes too broad or too big and doesn't really work and then some of the stuff just seems so tame like it's such sort of toothless tame basic joke jokes about you know uniforms and 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 mannerisms and walks and 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 like things that's just things that have been satirized much better before in the past by you know monty python and on and on I, I just, yeah the producers like that cut yeah 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 you know you get a uh stephen merchant cameo as well which is is not bad and it works in the trailer perhaps even better than it works in the film because it's just sort of one one joke um and one joke that's not a bad joke it's not a bad joke that's probably the the, that's probably the i think the 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 one bit i laughed at i think was the stephen merchant the the stephen merchant cameo um yeah thinking back i think that is the only time i probably raised a at least raised a smile in it just it was just a very odd just a very odd juxtaposition of a film i don't understand what at which point in the writing process did he go did he think this is a good idea um because he's you know there's undoubtedly a talented director and undoubtedly at times a, a talented actor it's just the two just didn't gel here i don't think it was it was an odd just an odd choice yeah yeah and maybe it is just the choice to some extent the choice of subject matter because his smaller films you know whether it's boy or hunt for the wilder people in particular dealing with you know a less um sort of globally um impactful set of people those films work because they seem to have a great deal more 
heart, or at least he finds a better mix of sort of co comedic beats and dramatic beats than yeah. he does here. This kind of seems like, yeah, like, you know, like a drummer when you go to see a band and they're kind of playing off kilter and it kind of fucks up the whole <laughs> performance. It felt a bit like that here. Like, Watiti's your drummer and he's just not keeping the beat. So that's... That's unfortunate, man, because like you said rightly, there are good things in the movie. There are good individual scenes. There's an amazing Thomas and Mackenzie performance, as we've mentioned. Good supporting work from some of the others. Uh, but overall, it, it didn't really congeal into something satisfying, something adequately funny, or in my case, adequately moving, because I just checked out a bit by the end. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much with it. For me, I think I, I think the drama sounds like the drama works better for me than it did for you. I didn't, I didn't come out disliking the film as such but i still think uh, compared to what i was expecting from it and compared to what this could have been i think it full it still felt way sh i mean my expectations were high don't get me wrong uh but i think it still felt way short of way short of my high expectations of it yeah so we're not we're not going to spend any more time petting this rabbit but paul we're also not going to wring its neck and throw it into the woods <laughs> no, because it not, certainly no. <laughs> had some things going for it yeah. um that brings us to the end of our feature review of jojo rabbit which means that we have just got our top five to come this will be the top five most anticipated films of the year 2020 from both myself and paul right after this Right, so you were talking about um, the the most uh, the best of the decade list being quite painful to put together, but this one, to be honest, with the amount of films that are coming up this year, I uh, this was all, almost as a painful as this to put together. Now that's an exaggeration; it was nowhere near as painful. However, it wasn't the easiest list to put together. Um, whittling it down is the yeah, hard part. Whittling it down is difficult because there are a lot of things I'm excited about, um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of films I'm excited about. Whittling down to five each was tricky, uh, but I think we've done it. I think we've. The, should we start with some honourable mentions before we go into the the top list? Yeah, there's probably a good way to do it um, so that people will know in advance that these things aren't going to come up on the list. Um, what have you got, man? Uh, the Many Saints of Newark um, is the uh, Sopranos prequel film starring Michael Gandolfini, James Gandolfini's son, um, as the young Tony Soprano and is directed by David Chase and acts as a prequel to Sopranos, which is probably my favourite TV series of all time. So yeah, pretty excited for that one. Um, that drops, I think, middle of the year in terms of release dates, although that is sub that any release dates that we if we have them here, they are very much subject to change because that's how film works. So yeah, Many Saints of Newark is probably one of my honourable mentions. Anything for you, Pete? Um, yeah, a few things. Um, we have all, I, I would expect you, listener, too, have seen the Antebellum trailer, which is produced at least by Jordan Peele and has this kind of creepy, eerie look to it and Janelle Monet, so that's enough to get us in the door. Um, A Quiet Place Part 2, the first film I thought was, was good, if not great, and so looking forward to that one, although it didn't make the list. Birds of Prey, I'm still on board with uh, Margot Robbie as Harlequin, so uh, that one. Uh, the new Pixar movie, Soul, is coming out this year, which should be interesting. Any more to add, Paul? Uh, Candyman, um, produced by Jordan Peele, starring Tony Todd. It's a sequel directed by Nia DaCosta. Uh, it's a sequel to the 1992 original, so I'm quite looking forward to that. Uh, Bill and Ted are back this year with Bill and Ted Face the Music, so I'm looking forward to that. Whether they'll land it or not, I don't know. Uh, the Jesus Rolls is out as well, which is the long, long, long-awaited uh, Big Lebowski spin-off, uh, directed by and starring John Turturro. Um, yeah, that's probably it for honourable mentions, to be fair. Let's get to I've it, got... Pete. Well, I was just going to throw in just a couple more. Um, Wes Anderson's new one, The French Dispatch, is out this year, and it hasn't made my list, although it was kind of close uh, to it. 
Um, yeah, apart, no, you might be right. Apart from that, I mean, there are loads. Pablo Lorraine's got a new movie. Um, there, yeah, uh, all, all kinds of things. I mean, the thing is, what you can do, dear listener, is you can go and look up an exhaustive list where someone has said, here are the most anticipated films of the yeah. year and then listed 90 releases <laughs> and knock yourself out. But what we're going to do is really hone in on our most interesting five in terms of our individual taste in films i guess uh, yeah. essentially or, or a bit of a blend of things that we're looking forward to so paul kick us off what's your number five most anticipated for this year uh, i'm a glutton for punishment but it's definitely adam wingard's godzilla versus kong um what more could you ask for everyone who listens to the show knows i love big monsters fighting big monsters and this is the biggest of monsters fighting the biggest of apes um yeah incredibly excited for godzilla versus kong i'd be excited anyway however this, Pete, is directed by Adam Wingard, who, with the exception of Death Note, I don't think has really put a foot wrong. Uh, Your Next is great. The guest was great. Um, he's one of my favourite up-and-coming talents, I think, in terms of film directors. So, yeah, if you combine that with um, Millie Bobby Brown's back um, in this film, uh, which, and I think she was one of the one of the better human performances in uh, Godzilla King of Monsters, and it's Godzilla fighting Kong um, with all that that entails. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to this epic smackdown, and the film is whatever... Whatever you think of it, the film's going to be huge in terms of set pieces. So I'm very excited to see Godzilla rock with Kong. Uh, and if anyone's interested, I want Godzilla to win. Yeah, is it? Um, <laughs> you may have just said this. Is it Wingard who made the Blair Witch remake? Uh, yes. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, a director I like too, actually, and and on board with that. And um, monsters smashing each other's heads in with Adam Wingard involved. Yeah, great. Give it to me. Uh, <laughs> Number five for me, then, is the sequel to the 2017 movie that I praised a lot on the show, I think, at the time, uh, Wonder Woman, from director Patty Jenkins and obviously uh, starring Gal Gadot in the leading role. And that's basically all I needed for the sequel. As long as we had Patty Jenkins back, as long as we had Gal Gadot back, which we were always going to have, it's good enough. Because I just thought that the first movie was such a triumph. I think it does so little wrong. I think it does a great deal right. Yeah, maybe the denouement of the film kind of uh, got a bit stand standard superhero-y for my liking but there are you know the powers that be are going to have influence over those kinds of things uh in terms of the um unveiling of wonder woman in full cinematic glory in the modern era i mean it was in my opinion an absolute triumph and i think gal gadot gal gadot is like just cut out for this role just knocked it out of the park in the first movie so to have her back on screen and to have her uh under the the watchful eye of patty jenkins is is like i said at the beginning just enough for me um without getting into really anything else about this i think the trailer looks great i'm totally with you on this one i'm not such a fan of the original film pretty much for the reasons you just listed there um in terms of its denouement and that kind of thing but i think this time you're going to have patty jenkins she probably i would say is likely to have more creative control this time because wonder woman did so well um, the 80s setting appeals and there's and, and Pedro Pascal is on villain duty so yeah I'm pretty excited for pretty excited for this to be fair so this will be uh, June 5th um, all things being well in the summertime so not too long to wait Paul what's number four for you uh, number four for me is a film you might have heard of uh, the latest from Christopher Nolan which is called Tenet which if the clever among you will realize it was also the same it's the same word backwards is also Tenet um, so there might be something to that being it's a Christopher Nolan film um, this stars John David David Washington, who I thought was great in Black Klansman, and Robert Pattinson, who is pretty much great in everything. Um, and the trailer looks absolutely incredible. It looks to me, may, a return to form might be the, the wrong word. It, it returned to sort of material that I guess I would expect from Nolan after Dunkirk, because for me, Dunkirk 
outside of an IMAX theatre lost a lot of its appeal, um, controversial as that may be. Um, yeah, I think Tenet looks great. It looks like there's going to be time travel involved. The more the more you watch the trailer, the more you see. Um, look out for the waves going backwards, which blew my mind because I didn't spot it until about the fifth time into the trailer. Um, and watch the trailer on as big a screen as you possibly can. Um, yeah, Christopher Nolan is a director that I like a lot. He makes blockbusters with a brain, and I think Tenet will be great. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing it on the biggest screen I possibly can. Yeah, yeah, that's always key with the latest Nolan release. I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> get, get yourself to a massive IMAX and uh, and drink it in. Uh, number four for me is Benedetta, which is the latest from Paul Verhoeven. Um, this description plus one actress, uh, a 17th century nun in Italy suffers from a disturbing religious and erotic, uh, excuse me, from disturbing religious and erotic visions. She's assisted <laughs> by a companion and the relationship between the two women develops into a romantic love affair. It's prime Verhoeven country. I was going to say, yeah, this, if the, did Paul Verhoeven make this? <laughs> yeah, and uh, the actress that I was going to mention is a one of my faves in Charlotte Rampling. So uh, Paul Verhoeven reteaming with Charlotte Rampling. Uh, the movie sounds to me pretty intriguing. And this is his first directorial effort since L, which uh, of course did make such sort of big waves. And I think is just a really interesting piece of work. It's got Verhoeven fingerprints all over it mm. and some really weird choices in that movie, in a sense, aside to the central discussion that was, you know, people were involved in it about about the uh the the issues in that film but yeah enough on l uh, benedetta uh, should be a real thing to behold a real sight to behold i mean that's what we hope for from a paul verhoeven movie i think for good or bad it will be a, a true spectacle in uh, more than more than one way so um yeah looking forward to that a lot that's my number four paul what have you got number three uh, number three for me, I've got uh, Weathering With You, which is an awkward title and I imagine an awkward translation, but it's the latest film from Makoto Shinkai, who directed Your Name, uh, an animation that I'm incredibly fond of and was an absolutely beautiful and moving moving film for sure. Um, all I really know about this, there's a trailer out, it doesn't give too much away, but boy runs away to Tokyo and befriends a girl who can seemingly control the weather. Um, and that's kind of all the trailer really, really gives away, to be perfectly honest. But Your Name was such an incredible piece of work that I'm just very excited to see whatever whatever comes next from from the director and that is dropping quite soon actually i think at the end of january so not too long to wait for that one so yeah that's cinema number three i just wanted to add pete before we carry on there's a few films absent from this list um that such as parasite lighthouse uncut gems i guess we are excited for those we've seen them i think between us so stuff that we've seen hasn't made the list i just want before anyone goes where's parasite where's this and where's that that's where they are we've seen them so they don't cut the list yeah and, yeah. and just to tag <laughs> on to that paul we, we've seen them and the thinking is here between us that we want to get those feature reviews out fairly soon so we yeah. don't want to sort of retread all the same ground so we focused on some other stuff yeah absolutely uh, as yeah. you point out yeah uh, number three for me is a film entitled blonde and again it's kind of a combination of director and actress here that gets me in the uh in the the cinema for this one the director in question is andrew dominic he of uh chopper fame uh, the film when i think about it makes me smile uh, but also <laughs> more recently things like uh, killing them softly um and in the leading role as marilyn monroe uh, we have anna diamas anna diamas, uh, diamas of course who was in knives out very recently and uh, blade runner 2049 not too long ago uh yeah what more do you want um, a fictionalized chronicle of the inner life of marilyn monroe uh, i take quite an interest in the uh, in the life and the documents related to the life of marilyn monroe i think she's an interesting figure uh, maybe in quite a generalized sense uh, and also just seeing the uh the sort of progression of her work through her career 
career. Her life is something that's been tackled even quite recently on screen. But Andrew Dominic is just a director that I'm very much on board with. And I know he's not universally loved. And I know not everyone loved Killing Them Softly. And I thought it was a bit didactic and I get it. But I'm really excited for this. So it's made by number three. Good shout. Good shout. Uh, number two for me is the latest from Edgar Wright and the first outright horror film, I think it's fair to say, we've had from him. This is Last Night in Soho, which stars uh, someone we talked about earlier, which is another reason I'm excited about it, Thomas and Mackenzie uh, and Anya Taylor-Joy. Um, the premise of this is a young girl passionate in fashion, passion, passionate in fashion design is mysteriously able to enter the 1960s where she encounters her idol, a dazzling wannabe singer. But in true Edgar Wright fashion, not everything is as it seems and time seems to fall apart with shady consequences. Um, it's an Edgar Wright horror film starring Thomas and Mackenzie. I don't think I need to say much more than that, to be perfectly honest. Um, Edgar Wright is one of my favourite working directors. Baby Driver didn't grab me as much as it's grabbed other people, but that doesn't mean to say I didn't like it a lot, because I did. Um, and as I said, I will reiterate, it's an Edgar Wright horror film uh, starring Thomas and Mackenzie. So I'm all on board for this. And, and you said another name in there, Anya Taylor-Joy. Anya Taylor-Joy, right? Matt yeah, Smith's in this as well, which is an actor I'm less less familiar with. But yeah, Anya Taylor-Joy is also always always valued for money, to be fair. So yeah, very, very excited for this. This one's due September at the moment, I think. So we'll see whether that gets jumped around or not. But yeah, Edgar Wright directed horror film. Very excited for it. Mm. An interesting one for me, perhaps, at, at number two is a film called Druk. Paul. Uh, Druk from director Thomas Vinterberg, who uh, you'll know maybe from as far back as something like Festen in the Dogme series of uh, films produced under that doctrine, but more recently for something like The Hunt. Oh, The Hunt was brilliant, yeah. The film Druk actually reunites Vinterberg with Mads Mikkelsen from The Hunt and also a number of key cast members from that production. And here, Paul, is the synopsis. Uh, it's based on the theory that alcohol in the blood opens the mind to the outside world so that problems seem smaller and creativity increases. Uh, <laughs> the, the characters at the centre of this film, I'm led to understand, decide that having a little bit of alcohol in their system at all times will allow them to access all of their creativity and all of their potential. Uh, they work as teachers, so this might not be ideal. Um, and so it seems as though Vinterberg is cooking up something that is going to be both dramatic and possibly comedic. I Although, think it's black comedy. It sounds like this could be a black comedy, to be fair, but yeah, it may not yeah, be, it, but... It will be interesting to see how that comes out in the wash. But yeah, in terms of uh, Vinterberg, yeah, I couldn't be more on board. And the premise, if not advice that I would sort of give to anyone or recommend that they live by this doctrine, does sound interesting for the purposes of a piece of dramatic work. So that one's uh, Druck, and it will be out this year at some point. And I'm making no promises about when to so stop asking. Paul, what's <laughs> number one for you? Right. When I was putting this list together, this film nearly occupied all 10 spots. I'll be perfectly honest. And it is so fun above the list of anything else that I'm excited about this year. Um, it almost deserves a list entirely to itself. Uh, this is Denny Villeneuve directing an adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. Like, I, I, if you don't, if you aren't excited by that, then just stop listening to the podcast. Stop watching don't films. Don't stop listening to the podcast. <laughs> Jeez. Don't stop listening to the podcast, sorry. Stop watching films, find another hobby. Uh, Denny Villeneuve directing Dune. I just, I, I've got a feeling this will be 
absolutely incredible. Um, the cast, get ready for this cast list, people. We've got Timothy Chalamet, Jason Momoa, Josh Brolin, Javier Bardem, Rebecca Ferguson, Zenzaya, Oscar Isaac, Stellan Skarsberg, and Charlotte Rampling. Like, and more. Like, I mean, that cast list alone, uh, with Denny Villeneuve's flair for sci-fi and visuals, I think this will be incredible. Um, I, the book I loved, I'm going to reread it, I think, prior to the film coming out, because this isn't due till December. Um, the book I loved, the adaptation so far, the Lynch film, I don't think is as bad as it gets, as, as a rap as it gets, but it doesn't work that well as an adaptation of the source material. There was a sci-fi miniseries of Dune, which was all right, but this is a book that really, really could be done justice by an incredible big screen project. And I've got a feeling this will be it. Um, yeah, Denny Villeneuve, Dune, absolutely far and away my most anticipated film of 2020. Nice. Yeah, in a similar sort of uh, giddy level of excitement for me, Paul, uh, I'm going to say that my number one for this countdown is I'm Thinking of Ending Things, uh, the new one from Charlie Kaufman. This is adapted for the screen by Charlie Kaufman from a source novel by Ian Reid. Um, the cast list, again, relatively starry, at the top of which we've got Jesse Buckley, Tony Collette and Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons is like killing it right now and he's Jesse in Plemons everything. Is great. And Jesse Buckley in this as well. That's a cracking cast. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah the, the premise, as much as we have it so far, an unexpected detour causes a woman who's trying to figure out how to break up with her boyfriend to rethink her life. If you want someone to make a uh, complex drama slash horror slash thriller, as it's described here, about <laughs> rethinking your entire life, Charlie Kaufman might be your boy. So, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't be more on board. My only, you know, real uh, concern here is that we actually get a release this year. Um, this one being that it is in post-production, I believe, right now. But uh, the signs are decent that we've got the idea, at least through the IMDb, that there's an internet release in the US this year, which to me intimates maybe it's going to be floated on Netflix or Prime Video. So either one of those would be great ways to see the movie if it isn't available in a cinema near you in due course. Uh, that one's I'm Thinking of Ending Things from the genius that is Charlie Kaufman coming out in this year, 2020. That brings us to the end of our countdown. Paul, do you want to just quickly whiz through what your five was? Yeah, absolutely. So at number five, um, it's Godzilla versus Kong. At number four is Tenet, the new one from Christopher Nolan. At number three is Weathering With You. At number two is Last Night in Soho, the new horror film from Edgar Wright. And at number one, or in fact in all five spots, is Dune from Denny Villeneuve. Nice. I had Patty Jenkins' follow-up to Wonder Woman, which is uh, Wonder Woman 1984 at number five. Uh, Benedetta from Paul Verhoeven returning uh, for the first time since L at number four. At number three, I have Blonde, the life of Marilyn Monroe, embodied by Anna Diarmas and directed by Andrew Dominic. Number two, Druk from Thomas Vinterberg. And at number one, I'm thinking of ending things by or from the mind of Charlie Kaufman. Paul, we generally end these shows with a little section called credits where you give credit to something from the world at large. Is there anything on your mind this week that you want to credit, discredit or talk about before we bounce uh, out of this I one? I think I've talked about this before because I think I just watched the first two episodes but I've seen Watchmen finish now um, and I can't recommend the TV series Watchmen highly enough for anyone that's got any interest in the original source material. It's a really, really effective sequel. The series just goes from strength to strength 
strength and um it's one of the one of my favorite tv shows from last year for sure so yeah i've mentioned it before but i've seen it finish now it's yeah it's twisty and turny it's not always an easy watch you do need to pay attention but it is a very very good tv show and the end it absolutely lands the end of the end of the season so yeah watchman again for me um if you haven't seen it check it out my um credit for this week paul is a bit weird i reckon but um it came to mind today for a very specific reason my recommendation or credit would be to parents who take seriously the 12a certificate (laughs) 12a being a certificate that means that children under the age of 12 need to be accompanied by an adult but really i think any sentient person should understand that it doesn't just mean accompanied by an adult it means that that adult is sort of signing off on the fact that that child is mentally adept for the content of the movie that they're being put in front of. I was in a screening today of Jojo Rabbit, our feature film, which includes from the outset, the BBFC warning, I believe, uh, states discrimination, um, sexuality, uh, like bloody violence or something like that, a number of different elements that make it almost a borderline 15 certificate movie. And in the film... I, I'm not making this up. There was a mother with taking care of perhaps four girls who seemed to be around seven, six years old. Wow. And at one point in the film, Paul, my anxiety was through the roof because one of the girls was just saying over and over again, I just want to go home. And the mum kept them in the screening for another probably 30 minutes after that. And I started to just feel bad for being complicit in the fact that these children shouldn't be seeing this material. So I suppose the recommendation is just that, you know, if you take kids to a 12A certificate, maybe check that the contents of that film you believe quite truly hand on heart are suitable for the children that you're taking, rather than selfishly going to see a film and dragging along kids who might be traumatised for a number of years by what they've witnessed. Sorry to rant at the end of the show, but it really, really bothered me. No, fair enough. Or maybe the BBFC should look again at the 12A rating. That might Perhaps be another so. option. But yeah. Perhaps so. Yeah, because that essentially means that you can bring five-year-olds into Jojo Rabbit, which makes no sense at all. <laughs> yeah, but but take responsibility as yeah. a parent is also what I'd yeah. say. But but yeah, both sides of that coin are absolutely valid. Um, anyway, not to put a damper on this thing, because it was a great countdown and we had a good uh, feature and, and I think return to... to regular scheduling this this week Paul yeah absolutely so yeah regular scheduling has been restored so that means we'll be back at similar time next week with a feature review of 1917 uh, popcorn films and all the features you've become accustomed to um, but yeah in the meantime check us out contact us on Instagram strangers at strangers in a cinema uh, Facebook strangers in a cinema at strangers cinema on Twitter or all the other social medias um, yeah get hold of us let us know what you thought of Jojo Rabbit let us know if you agree disagree we're always happy to chat so yeah look forward to it and uh, we'll be back next week see ya shut up and sit down